welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, we'll be discussing a worldview commentary piece published in the journal Nature Genetics in early 2021, entitled Genes Do Not Operate in a Vacuum and Neither Should Our Research. I am excited to have both authors with us here today, Daphne Marchinko from Stanford University and Marquia Smith from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I want to add that they are both actively using social media to make change, which I think is awesome, with Marquia being a co-organizer of the hashtag Black in Data Week and also participating in the founding and publicizing of the hashtag Black in Genetics Week as well. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. So can you provide some background in how you decided to kind of crystallize your ideas into these, this format? Yeah. So essentially what happened was um, I was working with uh, fellow co-founder uh, Alex Stutzman to establish Black and Genetics. And so from that came opportunities to work with other organizations. And one organization in particular that reached out to us was Nature Genetics. And they were saying that they were interested in doing commentaries and trying to get the point of views from people of color and other marginalized communities. And so I was like, um, Daphne had reached out to me at one point and I was like, this would be perfect. Looking at Daphne's background, um, it would be really great if we could talk about the history of genetics and what we're missing in genetics and how there's this lack of ethics. And since, you know, I'm interested in data as well, I was like, this is just the perfect um, collaboration to do because she has all the background in ethics and like social um, things and I'm like the one who does like all the genomics and stuff so it would be a, like a perfect mesh up since we have like very diverse backgrounds. And you know as a social media user I had seen the hashtag black and genetics week going on and I thought you know even though I'm coming from this biomedical ethics background I'm really interested in the ethics of genetics and genomics I think there could be a home for me in Black and Genetics. And so I emailed Markia and Alexis to introduce myself and, and say that I was so excited and grateful for the work that they were doing and that I would love to be a part of it in any way that I could. So I'm really grateful for Black and Genetics because I think that sparked this collaboration and it, it wouldn't have happened if that movement on social media hadn't started. Yeah, that is excellent. So I wasn't quite clear. Did you approach Nature Genetics with the idea or did they approach you to write they a comment? They approached us, actually. Um, we also had a couple others approach us, but I was really interested in talking to them also about like accessibility. And so this was like the perfect segue for us because the chief editor wanted to work directly with us and kind of discuss the possibilities of the different commentaries we could potentially do. And I just add that that partnership has only grown. We are actually um, going to have an invited speaker session at American Society for Human Genetics annual meeting this fall. That includes uh, that editor that we worked with at Nature Genetics, and we're going to be talking about gatekeeping in our field. So um, that collaboration is, is only growing. That's great. That is so awesome. So did the writing go as you expected it to? Did you encounter any challenges or surprises along the way? Um, there were no surprises for me um, in particular, especially because I have given a couple lectures um, around genetics and why we need diversity in genetics. So um, 
the the data wasn't surprising and the research that we did wasn't very surprising to me. I think the hardest part was trying to combine all of it into like a succinct paper because there's just so much we could have done, like we could have wrote a book on it. <laughs> but having so such little space is what was probably the hardest part is like, there were so many different avenues we really wanted to do, but we were like, this is perfect uh, stepping stone for other people to work off of and for others to be like, okay, we can build upon this and we can discuss different things and just kind of get the field thinking about what we wrote. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think it took us some time to figure out how do we hone in on what our argument is, given that we only have so many words to cover here. And so that was probably the hardest part, figuring out of the many things that we could talk about, how do we narrow our focus? But you know, for me, these are a lot of the kinds of arguments that I, I talk about all the time in the biomedical ethics LC, that stands for ethical, legal, social implication space. Um, and so it was a great opportunity to be able to communicate those points to members of the genetics community and, and also not just members of the, the bioethics community. Yeah, absolutely. And I hear that a lot from people as they don't realize how much editing is going to happen when they write some of these commentaries. And Fitting into a small space is so hard. Uh, that is the biggest challenge. Yeah, that, that must be really difficult. So I want to ask specifically one of the most important ideas that I think that you discuss in here is systemic racism. Um, and you explicitly say that researchers must uh, re actively reflect on their work near the end. Um, and I want to speak for myself and say that's been one of the most important things that I've learned in the last year, that there are way too many places that the system has been set up consciously or not, to make white the default. So can you talk about some of the examples of this in human genetics research? I know somewhere in the paper, but feel free to talk about others. Do you, I, I can start. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, one, one thing that we talk about in the paper and which I think the genetics community is increasingly engaging in conversation on is the fact that we use as a reference category European ancestral populations when we're conducting genetics research. Um, and how much of a disservice that is to other communities who are not going to realize the same benefits from the progress that's made in, you know, genome-wide association studies, as an example. Um, so I think that that is something that we are seeing uh, people recognizing through the formation of things like All of Us or the Native Biodata Consortium as an example of initiatives that are taking place to try and increase diversity uh, of genetic data and also work with communities to give them agency over their genomic data and how that data should be used uh, and in what ways. I completely agree, so I'm not gonna reiterate too much, but in my in my research, what's um, because I work uh, in health disparities, I I think I get a bit more of the um, call to action when it comes to like systemic racism, and a lot of my research looks at race as a social construct, and we have um, like cancer epidemiology seminars every Friday where we kind of. Um, hone in on how you should define race and how people define race in their studies. And I think things like that are really important because a lot of the times 
you see these, um, even in clinical trial work and like different genomics work where they use genetics, you see where they use white people or Europeans as the, um, as the reference group, rather than you can look within, like if you're looking at black people, you can look within black people and then compare within them. Um, and so I think that's what we're trying to move towards is not using them as the reference group and how that just plays a larger part in systemic racism and just holds them up as being um, the standard. And you, and you, uh, I also um, appreciated the idea that you talked about people who, how, how we can get um, people from all different communities to join human genetics and genomics if they don't see themselves reflected in their research, right? If they see that they're only doing populations on European, uh, or research on European populations, excuse me, that, that's really, that's not good, right? So that's another way I think you talk about it, why it's important for people to, to be able to, to, to be represented. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things we really wanted to communicate is that science is a social institution. It asks the questions that we as researchers, it answers the questions that we as researchers are asking it. And if we are homogenous in terms of the, the people that get to ask questions of science, then that's going to result in a narrower, narrower set of questions. Um, so again, recognizing that science is not you know, a, a value neutral enterprise, it gets shaped by the social landscape. Absolutely. I really appreciated your second suggestion. You made two of them for, for fulfilling our social obligations to, to pick up on your point, Daphne, which, and you said that is to increase the prevalence of and the public's accessibility to professional researchers from historically marginalized groups in the field of genetics. So you, you may know, you probably know that NHGRI has just published a diversity action agenda where that's one of our big goals is to increase diversity in the genomics workforce. We've just, uh, we're starting a new office that is specifically devoted to that. And your piece outlined a number of ideas for how to do that. So can you outline some of those for our listeners? Um, so I think one of the important things is, uh, as Daphne mentioned, is the community piece. Um, I think we need we need more community interaction, especially because like for my work, um, I'm in cancer genomics and we work with patient advocates. And I think that really adds value to the work and it really helps um, engage the community more because a lot of the times they don't know about different clinical treatments. They don't know what like different chemotherapeutic drugs may mean. And so bringing in the community and getting them more comfortable with the language also helps. And so that also by extension means going into the community practices, the community doctors and interacting with them and bringing them into the academic institutions and having them um, be more involved in this entire process. We have to recognize that the way that research is structured right now is not set up to build in incentives that encourage people to do things like interact and engage with communities in a, in a meaningful, genuine way. Uh, that is not what for example, tenure committees are, are necessarily looking at when they're trying to see whether someone should be awarded tenure. We place priority on things within the research enterprise that do not support many of the calls to action that we talk about in our piece. And so I think 
one of the other things that we're going to have to grapple with as a field is how can we restructure what it is that we're prioritizing in order to really engage in science that is just and equitable uh, and makes people feel like they can be active participants in rather than, you know, passive research subjects who are not going to then see the benefits of their participation in science. Yeah. Yeah. So many complicated issues there to unpack, but absolutely. I agree with that. And speaking of that, I um, obviously am very interested in science communication and you talked about that some in your piece and I'm biased of course, but I appreciated that you suggested more creative ways to make genetics more accessible, uh, including videos, comics, and other visual media, media, maybe even podcasts like this. So I um, was wondering, did you do any science communication specifically around your paper when it came out and how did that go? And do you have any tips to share with maybe trainees who are listening? So I think we were a lot more grassroots <laughs> in the sense that we were handing it out to our different networks, explaining kind of what the paper was about and um, just sharing it via social media. I feel like there's such a, a large community on science Twitter that even just sharing the paper on there and, and saying like, this is our call to action or this is what these are our opinions and this is what we think should change, helped um, a lot of organizations recognize what we were doing and what needed to be done. And so I think it started a lot of good conversations. And so I don't think we did any like official SciComm, but we did do like word of mouth, which I think is very common in the community, um, is that that's what most people respond better to. Because sometimes, I mean, I'm a big proponent for accessibility and sometimes, you know, they maybe couldn't access the journal or they can't access um, or maybe they're blind or they're like, there's different things that that are not accessible. And so I would rather do word of mouth or things that I know people would be able to interact with because sometimes people don't have the, they don't have the, they also don't have the capacity or the mental space to read. <laughs> so I think word of mouth was like our best thing. And then we had um, like at my university, people were sending it around and talking about it and things like that. And I would also say that I think we've both, Marky and I both have, have said that, you know, the arguments and the points that we're making in this paper are pretty central to the work that we do. And so we're communicating it in, you know, any talks that we give, whether that be to an academic audience or otherwise. Um, so I think, you know, we might not be directly speaking to this particular paper, but the ideas from the paper are something that we're communicating all the time as much as possible. Yeah, because you can't separate them out, right? You're, we're living those ideas. Absolutely. Uh, so for Marquia, you are a trainee, right? You're a PhD student in pathology. So how did this process, what did this teach you that you'll carry on into your career? Uh, this taught me, uh, I would say that one of the my biggest <laughs> struggles is being concise. <laughs> and so Working with Daphne was definitely helpful <laughs> because I wanted, there were so many things that I wanted to talk about. And I even struggle with this when it comes to grant writing is that like, there's just so many things that I'm interested in and just learning to really focus on what I want the topic to be and what I want the arguments to be was something that I really thought was helpful um, because that can be difficult when there's just so many things you're interested in or you want to talk about. And it's like, I could write so many different papers on so many different things. I'm with you. That's the that, that's how it is, right? All the memes about your next project being attractive over here and your yeah, all your yes. other projects are like, what is happening? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. So uh, what's the next steps that both of you are working on? 
related to this, this, these ideas or these projects? Are there next steps that you're working on? Two questions that are related. And also we have a number of trainees that listen to the podcast. What would you recommend for them specifically about how they could do some of the next steps? So as Daphne mentioned, we do have an uh, ASHG um, session coming up. So I think that's one of the big (laughs) things that we have coming up next. And we're also trying to plan for Black and Genetics Week this fall. So I think those are the big things that are coming out of this is that we're trying to make sure we stay engaged with the community and just, I mean, maintaining community in a times like I'm still working from home, as you can see. So things like that is just like we need community sometimes. And uh, like I'm a trainee, so I'm working nonstop still. And like when we were writing this piece, I had a billion different things to do. Um, I was preparing for like my candidacy exam. So it was like it was a lot going on. And um, I think us preparing just for the session and trying to do like fun things like wind downs or something with black and genetics or different groups is very important. And just us discussing like how we feel is even important. So I think we'll build upon this and continue building our partnership with other journals and seeing how they make actionable change is what's really important to us. Like we would like to see more journals um, create more um, accessible summaries or abstracts and graphics that people can actually read because I shared like I shared this paper with friends who are not in this field and obviously like they were like okay I kind of get it (laughs) I get what you're saying like I get the premise but it would be nice if they had like a graphical summary or something that would get them like okay this is definitely what this means because I try to tell people like I want I would want somebody to understand the paper as if my grandma was reading it. So like if my grandma can read it, (laughs) then anyone could probably read it. And so I think that's what I would say to trainees is to try to think about how you would tell people who aren't in science and try to relate it back to that. I totally agree with that. I had a conversation with someone earlier today where we were talking about how difficult it can be to talk about your work to someone who's got no familiarity with it and how much it can show that you've mastered the topic if you can convey it to someone like your grandmother. Um, So I agree with that completely. And the only other thing I would add, because I think Markia comprehensively covered things, is that for that ASHG panel, a lot of what we're trying to do there is to provide the community with some concrete next steps that they can take to open the gates that are keeping so many out of genetics, out of uh, medicine. So I'm really excited about it. I think we've got a great group of people, um, people who are, you know, in a medical school student, we have a genetic counselor, we have a chief editor of Nature Genetics. So we've got people who are touching on genetics in different different domains, um, who've all are all understanding that there's gatekeeping occurring in our field and have taken steps to try and open those gates. And and so I'm looking forward to being able to have productive conversations with the wider field about how we can all together uh, not only look inward and see how we've been complicit in the system, but also what we can do to change it. Yeah, I think that's great. And I want to say I appreciate you both doing the work. 
because I know this is a lot of work. Like Marquia said, you had a lot of other things going on. So I appreciate you doing the work and providing suggestions for others who want to help shoulder some of that load. Absolutely. I think that's great. So thank you very much for joining us. Again, I'm Chris Gunter. Thank you, Daphne Marchinko and Marquia Smith for joining us today. And hopefully we'll see you in the next episode of Genetically Speaking. Thank you. Thank you for having us.